Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. Whether you are writing sales copy or writing a piece of content, telling a story from the stage. And this is especially true when you're in a conversation with someone, especially if it is if it can be a debate or it's a place where you disagree on something. The the maxim that I want everyone to remember is to enter the conversation through their door. Just think how much of this do they know and care about and then enter it from their point of view. going on U-Turn friends. It's Ashley here and I wanted to bring you something a little bit different in the work category and it's storytelling 101 with a really good friend of mine and somebody that is really close to me in my world, uh, John Romanello. I think a lot of you guys have probably heard of me talking about my best friend, Amanda Pucci. John is her amazing partner and he is a storyteller, a writing mentor. And if you check out his Instagram, you are going to see so much wisdom and it, it almost feels like high level information on how to really capture the framework of storytelling. Um, so we're just going to talk to you about how to do that, how to really tell stories at work, whether you have a client presentation, whether you're writing an email or whether you just want to have a really good date with somebody and be charismatic. John, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you so much for having me and that lovely introduction. I really appreciate it. I'm like so excited to talk to everybody. Yeah. You know, you really have made such a impact on Amanda. Like she talks to me often about your ability to write and tell stories and I just can't help, but, um, ask you like what got you into storytelling in this way? That is, you know, like so many other things, it's when you go back far enough, it seems like it was always there. When I, the story that is very cute and that everybody kind of talks about in, in the legend of me, when I was eight years old, I told my mother I wanted to write a book. And when she asked me why, I said, because books make me happy and I want to make other people happy too. And if you just leave it there, it's it's very like, oh, that's adorable, this eight-year-old, you know. Um, and it is. It is cute. But if you go deeper, and I really – and a, with a big part of story is going deeper and finding out, like, what is the – what's the drive under that? It's more looking into why books made me happy. And I grew up in a, a traumatic and, and very chaotic environment. There was a lot of abuse in my household. And from the time I was very young, books were the way that I escaped. And reading, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings or any of the other books that I had access to when I was a kid, that became a place that I could go where I wasn't chaotic, where I could, I could inhabit a new world that even with its dangers of dragons and trolls felt somehow safer than the place I was growing up. And when we look at story and how story affects us, both in our, our internal lives and the way that our stories play out and in our businesses and the way we tell stories, we're always going through the same sort of psychological process. Storytelling is from you know time immemorial, before there was a written record, before there were words to, to put on page in any, in any form, oral tradition was how knowledge was passed down from you know, chief to tribe, from father to son and mother to daughter, and, and community to community. And it's, it's, it exists that way 
not because it's convenience, but simply because it's also the way that our minds and our hearts work to break down and process information. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't come to that realization until much later. When I was young, I just, I liked escaping and I liked going into those worlds and I wanted to create worlds of my own. And over the course mm. of decades, I've, I found new and different ways to do that. Okay. And when you think about an amazing story um, and just how somebody can start understanding what stories they even have. I know a lot of people think like, I don't really have a story to tell. Like, what are some ways that people can start to tune into the story that they already have? Mm. Well, first I would say everybody has a story. The story, mm -hmm. your story, that's the one thing that we all have. That is the gift that you can give to anyone. Everybody is curious about other people. And when you first meet someone and they don't know anything about you, the gift of your presence is really only a gift because of the way that you fill that space. And that is entirely dependent on how you bring the story of yourself out. And the, the first thing that I do when I, when I teach storytelling to people and help them realize they do have stories to tell is this. Whenever anyone asks you a question, they're not asking solely for a fact or piece of information. They're asking for a story. And I kind of like to set the context of when you meet somebody in a social environment, let's say at a wedding, you know, you're seated at a table with a bunch of strangers. Everybody there is going to ask each other the same three questions. Where are you from? What do you do? And how do you, how are you connected to the bride and groom? And then there's a fourth question. If you have a date, like how did you meet your significant other, your romantic partner, this person sitting next to you. And each one of those questions is not just when someone asks you, where are you from? They're not just asking for the place that you were born or the place you live now. They want to know how you got from the place you were born to where you are sitting in this moment right now. How, you know, if I was born in New York and I grew up on Long Island, how did I get from there to being out here in Los Angeles? And when someone asks you what you do, they don't just want to know your job title. They want to know how you came to be doing that thing, supporting yourself. When someone mm -hmm. asks you how you met your romantic partner, they, they want to know they're asking for a love story. And so every single person listening to this, yourself included, has all of these little stories that make up the larger story of your life. And we tell them all the time. And do you think, like you were saying, like everybody wants a story, but sometimes I feel like we are all so self-motivated. And even though we're all generous souls and, and good people, like people want a story almost for them to be able to gauge, like, can they make that happen for themselves too? Like whenever I met my partner, I feel like a lot of people were like, how'd you guys meet? And there was like a thread of like, and can that happen for me as well? So what stake do you think that has in storytelling? Like, you know, other people kind of thinking about the story, not just from entertainment standpoint, but from their own gain, you know what I mean? Oh. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, we're all self-motivated. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Every, every single person on some level is, is taking e even altruistic actions that are for other people. We're doing them in part because to do that makes us feel good. And so when we're asking for someone's story, it's totally okay that there is this sort of underlying thread of like, is this person going to be of value in my life. Sometimes mm -hmm. that is, that's a top level thought. Like if you're at a conference of some kind and you ask someone or somebody asks you what they, what you do, they may be asking because they want to suss out whether or not there is some opportunity to do work together. But if you meet mm -hmm. someone in a, in a social context and they, they're asking you questions about yourself, maybe they're trying to find common ground and just human connection, which is another way of trying to get something out of it. And so as a storyteller, which we all are, there are a couple of different ways you can take the same story and mold it. You know, if, if somebody whom you know very well asks you for the story of your weekend, you might go into great detail and what they're getting out of it is closeness to you. Whereas if someone who you just met asks you about your weekend, you will truncate it and mostly give them the bullet points. And so mm -hmm. part of being a great storyteller is, is sort of recognizing the energy of the audience and understanding your level of, of closeness to them, what I call where, where they stand in what I call the intimacy funnel, and then being able to determine how much of this information do they actually want to hear. And great storytellers, really great storytellers, 
have an innate ability, and it's not—it's not innate. It's—it's it's a cultivated ability to determine how much information I can give this person before they opt out, and that's a big part of of what I teach: knowing knowing the audience, knowing what they need to know, and giving them only that. And then, if you are if you are very entertaining, if you are very funny, if you're very charming, you can you can go on for a little bit longer. It's the same thing in writing. Mm -hmm. If you are mm -hmm. if you're not a great writer, if you're not mechanically strong, then you know, you want to keep your writing a little bit shorter so you don't lose people. What I, when I coach writing and people ask how long should my posts or articles be, I always tell them exactly as long as they need to be and not one word longer, unless you're good. Mm -hmm. If you're very good, you can, you can bring people through 3000 words and they'll listen and they'll read because the reading itself is enjoyable. And the same thing with the story. Sometimes you just like being in that world. Mm -hmm. And what do you think it takes to like capture that person initially when it comes to storytelling? Because I know that when we, before we started recording, you said, of course, as everybody has heard, there's the beginning, middle and end of a story. And you have a different mindset around what each one, you know, what each one has as far as purpose goes. Um, but what do you think is a way to capture people, whether it's an Instagram post or a client conversation, you know, like where do people start in really commanding that? Whether you are writing sales copy or writing a piece of content, telling a story from the stage. And this is especially true when you're in a conversation with someone, especially if it, is, if it can be a debate or it's a place where you disagree on something. The, the maxim that I want everyone to remember is to enter the conversation through their door. Just think how much of this do they know and care about and then enter it from their point of view. And so when you begin a story, it is, you're beginning with what, so I have a, a, a five-step storytelling um, model that I use to teach my clients. And the first step is frame and framing the story is really establishing the set and setting. And to give you an mm -hmm. example, if I'm telling you a story that happened in New York city, if I just said I was in New York and then I start telling you the story, you may or may not see what I need you to see. Everyone listening to this podcast right now has a different image come up in their mind when I say New York City. The people who are from New York, they might be wondering, okay, this has happened in Midtown. Is it in Brooklyn? Is it somewhere in the village? The people who have never been to New York they might be thinking that all of New York is Times Square and massive buildings and, and billboards and things. Mm -hmm. And then the people who have, who have you know, been to New York a few times have a different experience. And so when you are framing a story, the thing that you need to do is help them see themselves in it, both as a character and as a setting. And so describing the time and place that it's happening to help them and, and using familiar anchors that is how you get people to visually see what's happening. And then that allows them, that's called mirroring. They can put themselves in it immediately. And when you are mm. talking about a location that may or may not be familiar, you want to start with things that everyone is familiar, familiar with. And so if we, if we go back to some, some tropes in horror, you know, old horror store campfire stories uh, start with on a dark and stormy night because everyone can intrinsically feel the feeling of, you know, the, the shiver that you get when lightning strikes or thunder booms, you know, the, the feeling of being in the dark. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe with Once Upon a Midnight Dreary While I Pondered We. So you just, you know, what you know, the time of night, everybody knows what midnight looks and feels and sounds like. And so you give them something familiar. And so if you're, if you're writing let's say an Instagram caption. And I like to talk about Instagram a lot because it's, it's the, it's the driver of a lot of people's marketing at the moment. Um, even something as simple, like mechanically as something as simple as using the location tag in when you post your picture, <clears throat> just to give them an idea of where this is happening. Um, mm -hmm. when I write a story about something that's happening and I say, on a dreary December Tuesday in New York City, I find myself at a coffee shop. And just there, by using the word dreary, what colors come into your mind? Mm. You I know. would say, yeah, yeah. I mean, just what was the question? What what comes to mind? What, what comes to your mind? If I say on a dreary oh, December dreary. Tuesday in New York City, just tell me, describe the scene that you see. Mm. I just see like uh, wetness and mm -hmm. I can like feel the moisture in the air and coldness and darkness. Exactly. Whereas if I just said mm -hmm. on a Tuesday in New York city, again, now I'm 
relying on your experience of what your Tuesdays are like and your experience of what New York City is like to kind of guide the story. And those are two yeah. unknowns. And so by saying on a dreary December Tuesday, so dreary, everybody knows what dreary means. There's a grayness to it. It's kind of misty. It's the kind of cold that goes into your bones. And with that one word, and then also, you know, here's the time of year it happened. I have brought you into the story in a way that makes you feel like you're there. And that is the first step to getting someone to see themselves in it. So framing uh, it, okay. having like a That's really, what... yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. One question. You'd said familiar anchors. Can mm -hmm. you tell everybody like, what does a familiar anchor mean? Is that just like a city or like a, the word dreary? Like what does the word anchor mean for you when people are framing their story? Mm -hmm. It's something that the majority of your audience will will all agree is the same thing. So dreary pretty much means the same thing to everyone. Whereas New York can mean a dozen different things to a dozen different people. So some sort of familiar anchor, like, um, and, and it can depend on uh, whether you want it to be hyper-specific and explicit or whether you want it to be more ambiguous. And a great, a great thing to play with in terms of anchoring is time. And if I'm telling a story about when I was in high school, which was the years between 1996 and 2000, if the culture of that time was important, then I, I will like use the years as the anchor. But if what I want is for the person reading the story to go back emotionally to what it was like when they were in high school, I will just, if I want them to see themselves in the character of me being a freshman in high school, I'll say that because, you know, that experience of being uncertain and being in a new place, you know, like when I was a freshman in high school is very different, you know, for the listener than in 1996. So in 1996, everyone was a different age, people have, but everyone who was a freshman in high school experienced that uncertainty. So the anchor of, of the high school experience is universal, which is why even at 35 years old, you and I can can watch a movie about high school students or a TV, and, and we can sort of still see ourselves in it because that's a universal experience. Got it. Okay. And then another question about framing, you said mirroring, like putting them into something familiar so that through your experience, they can kind of identify themselves. Like when I open up my book, U-Turn, which won't be out until like January, 2021, but I open it up with me at the Pentagon, which is not a place that everybody's really been, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's yeah. what my first job was. And so even though the location wasn't somewhere that people have been, I know that the experience of, you know, what I talk about in the first chapter is realizing that this job that I worked so hard to get isn't actually the best job for me after all. And like I paint the picture of my first day at work, my first day at the Pentagon. So would you say that there's enough framing and mirroring if I'm describing where I am and creating those anchors of like what time it is or what kind of morning it felt like so that other people can relate to that. Um, but I'm like mirroring them as far as like the experience I'm having versus the place that I am, or do I lose my listener or reader because no. I'm putting myself somewhere that they don't understand? No, it's, it's actually great. Um, because again, we can, we can go back to fantasy novels. We can go back to like, Harry Potter. Like nobody in who's reading Harry Potter knows what it's like to go to Hogwarts, but because by the point you get to Hogwarts as Harry, you have identified with the experience of like being, quote, a fish out of water, going to a new place and feeling overwhelmed. You, you can see yourself in, you know, because what, what's, what the anchor is, the, the familiar anchor, the mirror, is the emotion. In your particular case, you're starting with this very sort of um, extreme location, right? This, this very specific place, the Pentagon, which is a place many people will never get to. Most of us will never go. But your experience of disappointment, this, this job that you worked really hard to get and you were very excited for is not what you wanted it to be. It turned out to be something very different than what you were hoping. That experience is familiar to everyone. Everyone knows disappointment and disillusionment. And so as long as you're focusing on that feeling, that's the anchor. Mm -hmm. And then the unfamiliar location now feels normal because even in the Pentagon, you Got can it. be disillusioned. Got it. Okay. So first step is framing. What is the second step? The second is the hook, which is really what's in it for them. What are they getting out of listening to or reading the story? And when I, when I teach my five-step model, it, it isn't necessarily in order chronologically or linearly. So 
often the hook may come before the frame in particularly in content you might have a headline that kind of incites interest and and is like you know five tips to be a better writer can be up front and then i will frame the story like on a dreary december tuesday when i was at this coffee shop in new york city so they don't always have to be in order they just all have to be there so it's more of sort of a circular checklist than um you know a, a five-step linear process but usually I, I try to list them in order of importance. The frame is actually more important than the hook because it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter the information you promise them, five steps to this, you know, ten ways to instantly increase your income. If you can't get them down the page or if they don't see themselves in it, then it doesn't the promise doesn't matter because it, it, mm -hmm. they won't they won't mm -hmm. stick around for it to be fulfilled. So in order of importance, it's the frame. You need to help them see themselves in it and get them gripped as quickly as possible. And then for the next step, it, the next piece of importance is the hook, which is the thing that they're going to get out of reading it. And in the case of somebody asking you, where are you from? If you tell that story, it doesn't matter what kind of story you tell or how good it is. If at the end of it, they don't know where you're from, then that's not a good story. It has to answer. So the hook is what's in it for me. It needs to answer the question and ideally deliver either education, information, um, uh, emotional evocation, um, entertainment, or some sort of increase in intimacy. Like they should feel closer to you at the end of it. Okay. And when you talk about beginning, middle, and end, are the frame and the hook something that comprise the, the beginning or can exactly. this be throughout? Nope. That's exactly right. Okay. The frame and the hook will be in the beginning. And then when we get to the middle, okay. that's sort of the bulk of the story, like the action that take, that takes us through the, the, the thing that is okay. occurring in a film or a book. When they, when they talk about the three act structure, the first act is a quarter of the screenplay or book. The final act is a quarter and 50% is the second act. So that's like the, mm -hmm. the majority of everything that's the happening. And so, yeah, the middle. It's like the bell curve. Okay. And so in my storytelling framework, the main thing I focus on is what's called the turn. And mm -hmm. I don't want people to confuse turns with twists. The turn, essentially, it's just where the story, it's how the story moves. And if you think of every scene that happens, you know, um, for example, you worked at the Pentagon and then you went to something else. Uh, what did you do after the Pentagon? Um, after that, I ended up starting my coaching business. Okay. That's so quite a turn. <laughs> that, right. So, and, and here's the main thing. There has to be a reason for that. And when I talk mm -hmm. about turns, it's really causality. A turn is a, is a, think of it as a hinge in the story, and there has to be a reason for it. One of my, uh, my favorite little clips on the internet is um, a lecture at NYU by the creators of South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, mm. who discuss that when they, when they write South Park episodes, it's a bunch of little vignettes, and each one is joined uh, together but they're they're joined by a but or a because. So what that means is you cannot have a story that's, I worked at the Pentagon and then I started my coaching business and now I have a podcast and now I do this. That is just a list of events. That's a sequence. Sequence mm -hmm. is not interesting. Consequence is interesting, which is to say, I worked at the Pentagon, but I was unhappy and because I was unhappy, I then started my coaching business. So the turn is giving voice to all of not just the things that happen, but the reason that they happen. And usually they are happening because of something or in spite of something. So you want to think in terms of but or because. And you will have multiple mm -hmm. turns within a story. Every single time there's, there's an action or something, a decision is being made, that is a turn. And so overall, that those are the, the things that drive the action of the story. But there has to be some sort of like central conflict, which is the main idea of, uh, the, you know, the action getting started. So if you were, you were to summarize in one sentence, it's the story of how I left the Pentagon 
to start my coaching business. That's the action all in one sentence. And then breaking it down to those steps and describing the reasons for each of those steps, the causality, that's, that's a great story. Okay. So that would be the hook, like that statement that that's you made. The, um, well, the hook is like, how did you, what do you do? How, like, why did you leave the Pentagon? That's like, that's the information that uh -huh. I want. And the, the, so the conflict that is getting resolved, if you're looking at it in terms of like, what's the action is overall the process of leaving the Pentagon and starting a coaching business. So the turns are mm -hmm. all of the steps along the way. Got it. Okay. Turns. I love this concept. And I feel like there's such a piece of art in each turn because it's what makes the book make sense. And, and this makes me want to ask you also about arcs and story arcs, but so hook, if we could just kind of define that, cause I know we've got note takers yep. here. Yeah. So the beginning is comprised of step one, which is the frame. Step two is the hook. What I wrote down is that you said the beginning brings people in and helps them kind of see themselves. And it represents mm -hmm. about a quarter of a story. Yep. Um, and then of course it's followed by a turn that gets them into the middle, which we haven't quite gotten to yet, but the frame seems to be like the set, the setting, the time, the place with anchors, such as times or feelings that can mirror with the character. And then the hook, how would you describe that in a quick statement for anybody who's taking notes? The hook is just the why that's, that's the a, why. So if the, mm -hmm. if the frame is who, when, and where the hook is why, and then mm -hmm. The bulk of the story is the how and what, and that's, you know, determined. Those are linked by turns. And then eventually we have the resolution, which is, you know, which is the end, which has to fulfill the promise of, of the, the hook. So the hook is very much the why. Why am I listening to this? Why did this thing happen? Why is it interesting? And always go back, just again, because we are talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, people who are familiar with the world of content, always go back to what's the clickbaity headline? That's the hook. What's the thing that I'm going to get, you know, that I can tell them they're going to get out of this. And when we think mm. about telling stories from you know, in our interpersonal lives, the hook is you're never going to believe what happened to me this weekend, right? So the hook is I'm going to hear something unbelievable and I already care because Ashley is telling me and I'm opted into Ashley. And so a big, big mm. part of understanding all of this goes back to that intimacy funnel, that knowledge of where this person stands in relation to you. Do they care about you enough to listen to any story or are they just getting to know you and every story has to somehow serve them and give them, quote, value and that over time brings them closer. And so when I when I teach this for a model for content, it's some of your stories should be exclusively personal and they should be for people who already know you very well and like they'll read anything and like one out of 10 can be that one out of 10 will be for people who have sort of never heard of you before it's the kind of content intended to go viral and that story has like a different voice it's more it's less told from the i perspective and more from the you perspective so it's it's less first person and it's more like you know when you go in the supermarket kind of thing but the the bulk of your stories uh let's say six to eight out of ten will be for people who are reasonably familiar with you and they care enough to like click your name on Instagram mm -hmm. and then they get brought in by a good frame and then they're getting value out of it. But they're also you know, part of the hook is that it's Ashley. Part of the hook is that it's John or Amanda. Uh, they're opted in. Yeah. So well, and that's the challenge with, I think this group of listeners is like, I know most of you who are listening, you guys are in the workforce and you're not entrepreneurs, but you're writing email subject lines, or maybe you're doing social media for your company. And so I think all of this information is just so important, but like the hook, just understanding like why somebody's listening. When I think of the hook, John, I think of like some punchy, like term for some reason, or like some punchy, like, uh, click, I guess you're saying like clickbaity, like mm -hmm. cat, like statement, like, like almost like an email subject line where it's like, Hey, you have to listen. Yeah, yeah exactly. That is the okay. email subject okay. line is the hook. It just tells me in yeah. one sentence what I'm going to get out of this thing. And so yeah. if, yeah. so for this podcast, let's say you're going to email it out to your subscribers and yes, I will. 
the <laughs> the the hook in the subject line could be the only podcast you need to listen to about storytelling or everything you need to learn about storytelling in 42 minutes or why storytelling is ah. the most valuable. And so that's the hook. But then the email would be the, the frame of it would be you taking three sentences to just describe firstly your experience of storytelling. Just like the more that I, you know, the more that I work with people in various businesses and industries, the more I see storytelling becoming more and more powerful. Or you could even start with a frame. If, if Since your people are in the workforce and they're not entrepreneurs, you might start with an authority establishing frame that helps them realize the importance of this up front, which could be, you know, according to a, a recent survey by XYZ Authority, uh, storytelling is the most important skill to develop in 2020, regardless of your job. And, you know, there are quotes from Seth Godin about storytelling. And, and so from there, you know, it's like you framed it with, this is the most important thing you need to learn. And then you can give your personal experience of storytelling. And then I sat down and did a podcast with my friend, John Romanello, master storyteller, who gave us his five-step process for telling great stories. And that's the frame. And then obviously the turn, you know, then you, they just listen to the podcast and they're here. And so it's very much like helping them see in, you know, what, what they're going to get out of it. Okay. This is so helpful. And then kind of when we move into three, so past the frame and the hook, would number three start to be whatever your point is there, the middle of the story after right. that turn? Yeah. So, yeah. So we are in, okay. so, the, so again, frame and hook comprise the beginning. The middle is the bulk of the story and it's, it's, it's beginning to answer the question or deliver on the information that was promised in the hook. And it, it is the turn or the various turns that drive the action. And then there's something that I call the dive. And stories have multiple turns, which again, are any hinge in the story that anytime you're changing locations, that's a turn. Anytime you are adding like a new action, that's a turn. And then there are dives. Dives are just detail. In a film, it's often exposition, like in a, in a superhero movie, it's where the supervillain stands up and for whatever reason runs a monologue and starts explaining his master plan. It's giving, it's giving background, it's giving context. Um, it's really just, it's, it's really fleshing out the world that is, that you began to create with the frame. And so it can be, um, it can, again, in a film, it might be a flashback or, uh, or a newscast in in our stories day to day it's sometimes just like reminding people now you remember what i said earlier and if you again if you're talking to a person who knows you very well it's as simple as you begin to tell a story and then another character enters and it's as simple as like all right and you know what my relationship with my mother is like so you're just reminding that person you have you already have existing information about this character and so just recall keep it in the front of your head because it's going to come relevant and in the case of telling stories for work it might be um you know if, if we're having this conversation in the time of the coronavirus and right now having this conversation on march 27th it might be helpful to remind people remember just a month ago nobody was taking this seriously that would be a dive it's a reminder it's just some sort of contextualizing information that helps people uh fall more deeply into the world that you have created and it can be, if you're writing a story or writing an email, it can be a citation. It can be a quote from an expert. It can be um, a, a picture is, some, you know, to just a, a meme can even be a dive. Just something there to, to re-engage people and get them to mm. see, like once again, see themselves in the world. It's just, it's just getting them mm. re-enrolled re in the experience. Hey U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. 
And so when we're thinking about a story, you know, the frame that that feels very much like chapter one, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or if if you're telling a story in a one, one sheet of paper, Mm -hmm. it it just feels like the beginning of like the time, the place, the hook, I guess that kind of would pivot from the time and the place into like something that captures their attention that they would care about. And then it makes a turn and mm-hmm. takes them into some sort of reminder or, or uh, I hate to say the word anchor. Cause I know you talked about anchors in the frame, but like anchoring them back into the right. story. The, the, the turn is like, where is this going? It's this new place. It's mm-hmm. the turn. Every turn okay. is, is an action taken. And then the dives are just reminders. So, you know, if you, to think of it in terms of being on screen, uh, if there's a character mm-hmm. that, has a has a what's called a character conceit, which is just a trait that is unique to them. Every fourth or fifth scene they're in, they will engage in that trait. And so, uh, if you have a character that that drinks a lot, that is a, that is a drinker and uses alcohol as a coping mechanism, there might be a couple of scenes where they're just engaging in regular life, and then whenever there's a conflict, you will have that person going into their office. And, and pouring themselves a whiskey because what it's doing is reminding the audience that this person engages with alcohol in this way. And, mm, okay. you know, within the context of, um, <clears throat> yeah. And again, I know this isn't like a purely social media audience, but in the, in the context of, um, people who, who do have big social media followings, it's, uh, the kind of thing where, you just over time you get to you get familiar with someone's habits and they are reminding you like they're they're showing up on their stories with a messy bun or it's even just a reminder that they're they're a, a dog lover by putting their dog in one of their pictures with them it's just some sort of deepening of the knowledge of the character or the setting uh, and and the I the turn the dives like need to be there because they make you care more about the world it doesn't move the story in any appreciable way that the dives adding more detail doesn't move the plot forward. It just makes people care more about the plot. And that is just as important. Mm-hmm. No, I, you just kind of got me thinking about like, cause my book is my only reference point for me of like really diving into storytelling and it's a 12 chapter book and it cut, it's broken into four parts and it opens up into like me, um, you know, feeling like I'm in the wrong job. And so part one is the U-turn, like showing them that moment, like that kind of the hook, like mm-hmm. what, what really happens for anybody in their career. And then part two of the book with a few chapters is turn signals, all the moments in my life, like mm-hmm. in a flashback that I wasn't paying attention to where I should have made a U-turn and, and for the reader where they could have been paying attention to for themselves and they could have made a U-turn. And um, each one, each one of those so, would be considered a dive because you're giving them more context okay. to help to help greater understand the point the, the overall point you're trying to make and if you have in the book if you have uh case studies or testimonials or or stories from other people that have have experienced similar things those would each be considered a dive because without them without without having a story about one of your clients who's gone through a U-turn the book is very much the same but the impact of it will be greater because despite that testimonial or, or that case study, not driving the, the plot forward, not, not moving the content of the book in, you know, with forward motion, it deepens their, it deepens the relatability of it because now it's not just about Ashley. It's about Ashley's client, Amanda or Carol or whomever. And it, that it just helps mm-hmm. re-enroll the reader that this other person who may be like me has done this thing and was able to go. And so now I, I am, I am re-enrolled in seeing myself in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. This is really helpful. And, um, I guess where I'm curious for your, from your expertise, and I'm just so excited for everybody to be hearing you because you're just, you just have this down to such a science in the way that you frame it. Um, I take a lot of dives. You know what I mean? All mm-hmm. of part two is a bunch of dives. It's a bunch of flashbacks. So I would say like 20 to 30% of the book, yeah, 20%. Is just this part. And then we get into part three, which is um, rerouting. It's now that I've seen all of these turn signals, all of these moments that I should have made a U-turn, I'm going to reroute my life. And um, it shows them how they can reroute their life. Um, so it's a little more actionable, a little less like reflective and a little more like storytelling to drive action, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
So, so instead of looking back and finding things to educate them, I'm looking forward and giving them steps to take action. Uh, would that also be a dive or would that be a different component of storytelling? That's for in this particular case, um, because your book is, is kind of what we'd call a how-to, uh, that would all fall mm-hmm. under the final category, the final uh, step in the model, which is the payoff. So it's, again, frame, mm-hmm. frame, hook, turn, dive, payoff. So the hook of U-turn is... If we had to summarize it in in one sentence, it's by reading this book, you're going to have the ability, you're going to gain the ability to understand when and where you need to make these shifts in your life and then, and how to do that. And so the payoff, like when you get to that third section of the book, when you're showing them or telling them about um, the, uh, the, 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 the turn signals or the, the steps to take and how to do that, that's fulfilling that promise of the hook. That's what ultimately the payoff does. It fulfills the promise of the mm. book, right? And so if I, if I start, mm. if I start the, and my hook is you're never going to believe this. And I tell you a story that is not particularly like unbelievable, then, you know, it's, I, I didn't fulfill the promise, but if I tell you a story, you're never uh, going to believe this. And I tell you a story that like makes you laugh and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe that shit happened. Then that's a good payoff. Mm-hmm. In the case of the book, it. it's, I'm giving you all the information to recognize and make you turns to better your life. And then the payoff is that whole third section where you're giving them the steps to do exactly that. And so each step is just like, you know, adding more and more on the scales of the payoff. And then by the time I close the book and I finish and I turn it over on that back cover, I'm like, yeah, that was great. I'm like, I now, I now know exactly what to do. Mm, Okay. This is great. And so, you know, you speak about these turns and even though it's the third component of a story, it seems like it happens throughout the story, right? Because you're saying a quarter is the beginning and then you make a turn into the middle. And can there be a bunch of different turns in the middle? Yes, absolutely. Again, every it time sounds like I'm doing okay. Yes, it, yeah, every time there's a change in location or scenery, every time there's a big decision that's made, that is a turn. And so, you know, okay. the way that I teach storytelling is as long as you have these things, your story is great. This is this is like beginning storytelling rather than trying to teach, you know, the 17 stage hero's journey or even a three act model or, you know, this there's overall like most of us are not, um, I think, especially people listening to this podcast who want to do this for work emails and in their personal life, they, they may never be standing on a stage delivering uh, a TED talk, in which case, like, you know, getting to the advanced courses is necessary. But being more effective in your own life as a storyteller and as a communicator, as long as you are checking off, okay, my story has a good frame, like I'm bringing people in, they can see when and where this is happening. It's a good hook. There's a piece of information that they want. There are turns, which means every thing that happens in the story happens for a reason. It happens because something made it happen or in spite of some other thing happening. And then there are dives where I am re-enrolling them and giving more detail that makes the story more relatable or fun or entertaining. And then there's a payoff where they got what they wanted out of it. They got the information. As long as you have those five things, your story is serviceable and good. And then from there, like really learning masterful storytelling where you're pacing things correctly. That's that's a more advanced, you know, sort of practice that you do over time. But, you know, to covering that in, a, in an hour long podcast is not is not possible. This mm. is this yeah. is like everybody can do this model. Mm-hmm. And so it almost seems like before somebody gets started writing a story, whether it's a one page word doc or it's a book or it's a pamphlet, you know, whatever that involves a story, it's like putting down these pieces of a frame, a hook, the turns, the dives and the payoff, um, and being able to kind of take a look at like, what are some turns I want to do from the beginning in the middle and the end or throughout, um, So, I mean, this is just really helpful. And as far as the payoff goes, um, you were saying like my book is more of like a how-to, but a lot of my book is also a narrative kind of like in the same way that Eat, Pray, Love is told, but it's like Eat, Pray, Love for your career ultimately with some sort of how-to. And I know that there's so many different books on the shelf that it sometimes is really hard to figure out where to put it on the shelf. Do you know what I mean? So how do you navigate I think a world where there's like certain shelf titles and categories, but maybe there's books that are wanting to be written that don't fit those. Or do you think everything fits what we have now? I'm sorry. Is the question, do I think every book that someone might write fits the shelves that we currently have? Um, 
Yeah, like the categories. That's a good question. Uh, I think that for the sake of ease, publishing would like them to, right? And publishing, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the structures that exist in publishing, both in terms of the machinery and the bureaucracy and the distribution channels, it's, it's, a, it's a old machine. It's a, it's a really old sort of uh, industry. And for the purposes of keeping it organized and it moving the way that it does, publishers certainly would like to be able to put your book on you know, or even if you're going to try and hit the bestseller list, right? There's advice, miscellaneous advice and how to is where most mm-hmm. business books wind up. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think a book, I don't think every book has to fit on on one of those shelves, but I do think that um, there is probably a difference between the type of person who's going to randomly pick that book up and read it versus someone who is going to read it or buy it um, on a recommendation from from or because they follow the author which is which is more and more what what books are becoming and um Mm -hmm. in the case of of someone like yourself who has a, a big following and and has an existing platform you have a lot more latitude to make the book something other than a pure how-to because people are already opted into the ashley stall show they're already opted into like your life and your experience and so your readership like is is going to be interested in that stuff and um, that should that should drive enough that even people who don't know you if they pick it up as long as the the framing of the book is good and you're delivering throughout the book on on the information that they need then over time like there there no one is ever going to be upset when there's like extra story in a book as long as it's good story so the the, the short mm-hmm. answer is i don't think we necessarily need more shelves and more categories because i think that tends to confuse things but i i think that there are many books written that can go on multiple mm-hmm. categories on multiple shelves. Yeah. It's been like an interesting experience for me because publishers, like that was one of the biggest blocks in my book proposal that I could, I could have gotten paid. I think more for my book um, in the end was that, which it doesn't matter because it's not, you know, it's such a labor of love. It's not like a money deal as much, but I feel like a lot of people were like, we can't tell a lot of publishers that interviewed me for my book said, we can't really tell what shelf you're trying to sit on. Do you want to be a memoir or do you want to be a how-to? And I was like, both. And so um, that was just something I thought to ask you. But a couple of final questions before we close out is, how does somebody tap into their own stories? When I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have told me when I write so much is, wow, you have so many stories. And I just think to myself, yeah, so do you. I'm just noticing the stories everywhere. Um, how do people like, do you have any tips for people to start to realize what their stories are or pay attention to their lives in a way where they start to realize how many stories are available to them? Yes, I do. That's a, that's a broad question in term because it it really is, is different for everyone. So what I would say is if you look at your, Mm -hmm. if you look at your life so far as a book, how do you personally divide your your, your book into chapters. And I'm asking you, Ashley, like, what are the, what is your process? Everyone has that and without realizing it. And some people do it by year, but tell me like when you, when you think about the big chapters or sections of your life, what are, what's dividing them? I would say, um, the, the beginning would probably be like my dad losing our home and me moving to suburbia, Mm. like just that event happening it'd probably be divided by like big events so that would be like one chapter is like growing up easily and then that turn Mm -hmm. of like my dad losing everything and us moving to suburbia and i think from there it would probably the next moment in time that stands out to me would probably be going through like my a breakup or even 9-11 i think 9-11 kind of impacted me inspired my career so i'd say 9-11 and then from there, maybe um, like a high school breakup. I had a boyfriend for five years, and that was just like my first emotional experience where of heartbreak. Okay, um, so it seems that the the recurring yeah. theme here is hardship. You are dividing just in this conversation alone, and this may not have, be how you do it all the time. But the three things that you've pointed out are your father losing his job, 
9-11 and heartbreak. And there's something about mm-hmm. the, the need for the, the, for, for an inciting event, which is the term we use in storytelling, occurs and it starts an entirely new part of your life. And that's great. And so that you are in your head, you are dividing your own book into either chapters or sections based on these big events that usually have some sort of emotional impact. And that's great. And so if, uh, if you gentle listener or a person who, when you, when asked, like, how would you divide it into the chapters of your life? If it's, if it's like Ashley and it's big events, then take that time. So for you, Ashley, it would be the time between when your father lost his job and nine 11. And how, how, how long was that period? Um, I would say he lost his job when I was in first grade and nine 11 didn't happen until like ninth grade. So okay. like eight years, huge, so an, huge period of time, huge period of time. And so just sit and write out all of the interesting or weird or funny things that happened to you during that eight year period. And each one of those will be a story. Many of us, when, when I give people this exercise and like, all right, what are the ways that you divide it? A lot of people, they can't. And so I'm just like, just do it in five year blocks. So I did, I did, um, a, a one-on-one or two-on-one storytelling workshop with our great friends, um, Natalie and Danielle from boss babe. And Mm -hmm. it was very helpful Mm -hmm to just divide it into zero to five years, five to 10 years, 10 to 15. And then it becomes high school, college, post-college business. And now, and then you just go through each of those sections and be like, all right, what are the, the interest? What are the things that stand out? Like about when I was five years old, is it where I grew up and what that was like? It you know, for me, it was the experience of being in this abusive household is, is one, that's one story. The experience of when we finally left my father and now we were on our own, that's another story. The experience of being sort of, you know, a nerdy kid at a time when it was not okay to be nerdy in, in middle school is another story. Everybody sort of does it differently. I, you know, when I do this exercise for myself, when I, when I look at the period of time from sort of when I was maybe 17 through 27, I had this odd habit and I still do it, I suppose, of whenever I'm thinking of an event that happened, because I I get so deep in my relationships, I had this habit of always thinking, all right, when did that happen? Who was I dating at the time? And so I was dividing this 10 year period of my life into chapters based on the relationship I was in at the time, whether I was, you know, in my, like, mm. my high school girlfriend or my college girlfriend, uh, or, or single for a time period. And, you know, being in that like four year period where I was just, just like being really, really single and engaged in that. And there was something about just having that way of segmenting my life that just made sense to me. And so for some people, it's by year. For some people, it's by, oh, this happened when I was living in New York or then, you know, I moved to Seattle and, you know, then you have your whole. So the first step is divide your life into chapters or sections based on whatever feels most natural for you as a dividing mechanism. For some people, it's relationships. For other people, it's just blocks of years. For other people, it's high school, college, first job. For some people, it's, you know, I was playing music at this time, and then I was doing this. And for for us, for you, the next chapter would be, this is the time when I was working in the Pentagon. And then there was the U-turn when you began your coaching business. And then from there, it gets subdivided. So just- Okay. First step would be divided into those sections and then try to find one thing that stands out in each of those sections. Mm -hmm. So automatically, like if you ask people like, what was your high school experience like? That is, that's a story. Your experience of high school is a story. If you break it down, there are probably dozens of stories within high school. The dumb things you did with your friends or the prom, everyone has these stories. You know, if you, if you're, if you're in the workforce and you have a job, then you had to interview for that job. You had a first day at work at that job. You came to that job from a different job. That entire experience is a story. Mm -hmm. So, so helpful. And, and kind of, um, my final question for you is who is your favorite storyteller? Oh, that's so hard. Um, if we're looking, (laughs) if we're looking at nonfiction, 
uh, Neil Strauss is, um, who, who was originally the author of the game. Um, and then he wrote a book called the truth, which I think is like, Neil is, I think far and away, like the best nonfiction storyteller of our generation. We're very, very lucky to have him. And, uh, another one is Tucker Max, who now runs a company called Scribe Media, which uh, does similar to what I do, helps people write books. Tucker is a, a truly, truly great storyteller. And um, his and, and both of these people, I, I would say, are great written storytellers. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss, who is an author of a book series called The King Killer Chronicle, both an amazing storyteller and just a truly beautiful author. You know, his, his stuff is absolutely thunderous prose. Neil Gaiman, who I, I think if, 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 if I can give everyone a tip, an action step to take after this podcast, search Neil Gaiman commencement speech. And in 2012, Neil gave a commencement speech at the University of the Arts. It's 20 minutes long. It's the best 20 minutes you will spend today. Everything that you've ever needed to know to be successful in life, he covers in 20 minutes. It's incredible. Um, and then from there, um, more, more storytellers in the oral tradition. Uh, again, Neil Gaiman is great, but stand-up comedians, real. How do you spell his last name? G-A-M-E-N? G-A-I-M-A-N. No, uh, yeah. G-A-I-M-A-N. Gaiman. Uh, he wrote Coraline. He wrote Stardust. He, um, wrote Good Omens and American Gods. And then if we're looking for. You know, the only storytellers left in, in the oral tradition are stand-up comedians. It's so interesting. I'm, I'm reading a book now called Consider This. It is by Chuck Palahniuk, who is the author of Fight Club, and it's a book about writing. And he says that in the oral tradition is very fractured right now for storytelling. And there are, there's only stand-up comedy and sit-down tragedy. Because the only two places you really hear someone telling stories are at uh, stand-up comedy shows and 12-step meetings. So it's stand-up comedy and sit-down tragedy. And I think that's very true. And then, of course, you know, when if you go to a lot of business conferences, hopefully you'll hear some good stories. But stand-up comedians are really just fantastic storytellers. They're so good at framing. They're so good at bringing you into the story whether that is through creating familiar experiences or avatars. And some, some of them are fairly problematic. You know, like I think Louis C.K. is a great storyteller, but obviously in the current climate with his actions, which were reprehensible, that becomes, you know, just problematic to even mention him. Uh, Dane Cook, who, you know, 2005 to seven was just on fire. He had an incredible, incredible comedy album called Retaliation. He's kind of, fallen off. He's not problematic. He's just not relevant anymore. Mm -hmm. But Bill Cosby was mm -hmm. an incredible storyteller, incredibly problematic. Um, but for, for amazing women who are great, Ali Wong is fantastic. Um, I love her. She's so funny. She has a lot of good hooks when she starts she, talking about her husband and all her. Yeah, exactly. She just watch what she does. I think that a great thing to do is watch stand up comedy and then watch it again. Watch like, just watch it back to back. And just the first time, just appreciate the comedy. And the second time through, don't look at what they're doing, but rather how they're doing it. That's the most beautiful. Yeah. And so, an observer. Yeah. Gosh, Sean, this has been so awesome. I'm so grateful for your brain and where can everybody find you, follow you and keep learning from you? I am on the internet. I am at John Whoa. Romanello on, <laughs> on uh, the Instagram. That is the place where I am, like many people, most active. My site is also my name, just johnromanello.com. And I am uh, I'm really always happy to, to engage with anyone. So please slide in the DMs if you have questions about storytelling. I've got tons of lists for books on, uh, on story and writing that I'm always happy to recommend. And if there's anything in particular that you are getting out of this by listening, please, I'd, like, I'd love it if you just like screenshot and tag me so that I can actually engage with you one-to-one -one because that is it's my favorite thing. I really just want to know like, how I can add value to your life. So please let me know directly. Woohoo. And those of you who look him up, his last name is spelled R-O-M-A-N-I-E-L-L-O. -L -L -O, so don't lose him that way. And my favorite highlight on all of his Insta stories is called Reginald. And he just talks about all of these different theories and uh, you just have to check it out. So thanks again, John. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. Thank you.
Hey guys, it's Ash here, and I'm just reflecting on the episode with John Romanello about Storytelling 101, and, um, you know, it's it's so interesting when you can take something like storytelling and break it down in a way where everybody understands that he clearly has an ability to do that, and it's so crazy when I got my book deal, I remember my publisher saying, let's do a kickoff call and you can walk us through your story arc. And no joke, I was like, uh, what's a story arc? Like I knew it was a thing. I just didn't know what the thing actually meant. And I think that sometimes when we think about authors or bloggers or whatever, we have this assumption that they know something about the art or the science of that piece of work. And John is definitely somebody who has broken it down to a science. And I know that there's such an educational lens that we could look through it at, you know, like for example, universities are going to have a storytelling course that sounds a lot different than how I would have a conversation about it. But one of the questions that I liked John asked was he said, if your life was a book, how do you divide it into different chapters? And uh, I find that this is really useful, not just in your everyday storytelling, but also in your elevator pitch and how you talk about yourself. And there's four different steps that I share in my Job Offer Academy course with people on how to write the perfect elevator pitch. And I've heard from a lot of different clients that this elevator pitch formula has also gone on to help them as entrepreneurs. And so the first step I talk about is your story. And, you know, your elevator pitch is that question or that prompt, tell me about yourself, which we're most often asked in, you know, a networking environment or even in a job interview. In fact, it is the most common asked question in both scenarios. And it happens to be the most botched. And I think it's because people assume that it's going to be easy to talk about themselves. And so they don't give it the thought and intention that it might deserve. So what I would love to present to you is my story piece of an elevator pitch and how to open it up. So the first step is to know and have your ear trained for when somebody is saying, tell me about yourself. You have to notice when you're being invited into an elevator pitch because the prompt or the question of tell me about you could come in many different costumes. It could sound like, what got you interested in this conference? What what got you interested in your job? What got you interested in marketing? Why do you live in Los Angeles? Whatever it is, it's all a prompt to talk about yourself. And the first step in my elevator pitch formula that I go through in my Job Offer Academy course is your story. So there's two different approaches that I share that you could take your story. The first one is a defining moment in your life. So this is for you if you didn't really have any evidence earlier in life that your career path was going to make sense for you. So here's what I mean. Uh, There's the defining moment approach and there's also the childhood approach. So the other approach to tell your story is the childhood approach where you basically think about what you do. So let's say you're a rocket scientist and you loved science or rockets when you were a little kid and you used to draw pictures of them. Let's say you're an engineer and you were like breaking apart calculators and computers at seven years old and putting them back together. Let's say you had an interest in high impact sports and you were like a little kid, you know, snowboarding shredding it at a really young age. Um, So sometimes what we can do is take a look at what we're doing now in our career and trace it back to our childhood. So um, maybe you're a marketing person and that really comes down to learning and understanding people. Maybe there's a way that you could talk about who you were as a kid and how you understood people on a very deep level from a very young age. So the list goes on. It's the storytelling approach from your childhood is all about saying to yourself, what skill or way of being does my job that I want to be in pull out of me? And how can I find that in my childhood? Um, That's one way to start your story. The other way, like I'd started with, is the defining moment. So for example, my work in counterterrorism, I, looking back, grew up in a house where the news was always on. And from a really young age, I knew what was going on in the world. That is an an elevator pitch story. So if somebody says, tell me about yourself, I can say I grew up in a house where the news was always on from a really young age. I had an opinion about the world and about politics. That's an opener. That's a story approach. Let's say that wasn't the case and I was really interested in working in counterterrorism. What I could have used was the defining moment approach. I could have said something like, um, you know, I was going on with my life and it wasn't until 9-11 that I got really interested in national security. I was affected by it. I had family members that I lost in 9-11 and it really inspired me to 
read up on national security, and I've become really passionate about working in it ever since. That's the defining moment approach. So I know there's a few other steps to the elevator pitch formula, but I'm a big believer in being able to have something right when you open it up. So hopefully that helps you with your elevator pitch and just opening it up. I have a free job hunting course if it's helpful for you. I believe it's at U-Turn Podcast, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job. Um, And I believe we go through the elevator pitch quite a bit in that course if that's helpful to you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you love this episode and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode.